Hey, so this podcast is, as you may have noticed, longer. It's an experiment. It's a conversation with a friend of mine, Dan Belyovsky, who is a professor and pianist. I'm going to put some links in the notes to his projects. If there's any feedback on the longer format, please let me know. I mean, I, I remember if, if we're talking about moments of rage, um, there are various reasons for a teenager to be upset, just not least of which is just being a teenager. <laughs> um, but I certainly remember uh, all of these moments, and uh, I think back, and one thing I do is I don't criticize that version of myself, but I'm, I'm seeing it and thinking, well, I'm so happy I moved beyond that. Mm-hmm. I'm not a 40-year-old who continues to throw um, <laughs> to throw <laughs> rulers at a bed in right. the hopes that the ruler will cut into the wood of the bed somehow, you know, like pretending I'm a ninja, you know, like a ge- <laughs> geometry ninja. Um, so just, just from that perspective, I see that and I kind of, like you did, I laugh at myself and I'm like, geez, what a ridiculous uh, adolescent I was. And I'm so happy I'm not that person anymore. Um, but I wonder if... I wonder if you see your tree-hitting self the same way. If you can remember that. Yeah, I think so. I definitely agree that I look back on my past selves. And that could be a day ago. It's not just adolescence. And I do something incredibly stupid. Yeah. And and I, I do empathize. I do understand that I was stupid. I was immature. I was inexperienced. I had no knowledge. I was full of hormones. I didn't, I hadn't learned how to interact with reality. I didn't understand the correct ways of doing things. And I look back and I say, those failures were the necessary experiences for me to now to even be able to fake adulthood, (laughs) even a little bit. And so I'm very glad I never have to go through those mistakes again, but I understand they were necessary at some level, if that makes sense. Well, sure. So is that what adulthood is? Is it just building on the foundation of all of your past selves? Or does it exist on its own? You know? No, I think... A I th- priori to those past selves. No, I think that's exactly right. I think it is based on... It's the X level of a very tall building... And each of those floors is necessary to create this adulthood. A lot of it, I think, is just experience, pattern recognition. And then, I guess I would say, like, just developing physically. Like, the hormones are no longer as extreme. Our prefrontal cortex has actually developed. Mm. Uh, And it's crazy to think about that, because they say now that the the prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until I think we're 25. Mm -hmm. And I look at all the decisions that I made before I was 25, Mm -hmm. and that people used to make in in terms of going to war, horrible things. And they were essentially, I don't know what the right word is, but they weren't fully developed. And they made decisions that changed their lives completely. And part of me is uncomfortable with that. Well, what about something uh, not quite as epic as going to battle, but uh, just getting married when you're 20? Right. Right. So another right. generation for them, that for, for example, for my parents, my parents were married in their early 20s. My mom had my older brother um, when she was 21. So 
does that mean, kind of piggybacking off of what you just said, that an entire adult mature life is built from immature and maybe not particularly well thought out or not to imply anything so negative, but just um, less than perfectly maturely informed decisions? Like a whole life based sure. on that. Yeah. I think the incidence of that is 100%. And I think that by the time you start to figure out what you're supposed to do, you're in a nursing home. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, by that like, point, the brain doesn't work so by well. By the so time you're, you're to ready to make decisions, the time for making decisions is over. And I think that's just how it is. Like That's maybe just a design flaw in, in the human brain. Well, maybe it's just we don't live long enough. But okay, how about this? Okay. Uh, society has changed. So if, we're st- if, if I can just sort of stick to the topic of marriage for a moment. Please. So divorce is so much more prevalent now. Mm. So people are freer to divorce earlier or just period to divorce in the first place. Uh, so in the past or in certain cultures, divorce is certainly frowned upon. And so people are locked in to this uh, union. And, and I mean locked in when it's not a happy union, right? Because I'm thinking about something I was listening, listening to recently by Jordan Peterson. His takes on marriage are that it's an agreement that people make with one another that when things get difficult, they're not going to walk out the door, that they have a commitment to one another to actually work through their problems. And he finds that terminology like being locked in or chained together are very cynical. So... Mm. I would say, okay, if you're in a bad union, then maybe you went into immaturely and without a real knowledge of what marriage even means, what commitment truly entails, and in a more progressive or possibly more liberal society, you can divorce sooner. So then people do have the luxury, so to speak, of uh, undoing to some extent their immature decisions. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they can, you know, they don't have to wait till they're in a nursing home. They can do something like that. <laughs> right. Right. So I guess I would say it's important to know that I'm not married. I've never been married and that you have been married yeah. and you're now divorced. So when I talk about marriage or divorce, I'm talking about something of which I have zero experience. Yeah. But that doesn't stop me before. So, <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm very conflicted about this because part of me says the value of making something hard to get out of is that it will change the way people approach problems within the marriage. And it's the old cliche. It's like Cortez burned his boats so his men would be well motivated. If they knew they could escape, they wouldn't fight as hard. And I think if both parties know that it's very simple to get out of a relationship, then when things really get bad, and they will in every relationship, yeah. the impetus to, to really stick together and fight declines. So I do worry about that. But at the same time... Well, that's echoing what, what Peterson says, right? It's the same kind of notion that once you're committed to something, you're making a promise not just to the other person, but to yourself not to look for the easy way out. Mm-hmm. Because looking for a way out, I, I think, might be just human nature. You know, you're, oh, for especially sure. if you're adventurous, you know, we, I think we're kind of compelled to keep moving. I'm going to make a terrible analogy, but it's the first one that comes to my mind. When I'm in the sauna, it's very uncomfortable. Like it's uncomfortably hot. It's painful. And the door is right there. <laughs> I could get up and leave anytime I want, but 
I try not to. Now, if I was locked in that room, would I be able to last longer? Is that the right thing to do? Well, you know, I mean, I'm huge into freedom, right? So my, my, my instinctive answer is always, if two people want to get divorced, they should. The freedom is the most important thing. Yeah. But it's tricky. It's really tricky. It is tricky because, um, because there are other mitigating factors. So let's say that there are children involved. So in, in one case, let's say that two people split up with a, with a child. Um, the question that, and you know, that, that's what happened to me. Uh, mm-hmm. the question that's really, really important is, are, is the split creating a better or a worse life for this child or the children? And in my case, I, I, I would like to think that it was better because the, the child was able to get out of a very toxic environment, um, and and ended up growing up, uh, without constant, uh, emotional violence let's call it that not mm-hmm. to not to imply that anything was you know abusive to the extent where the law would be involved but simply that you know toxicity has many gradations and so even an environment where two parents are just constantly unhappy is a very dark environment to live in and uh, i think for a child to be out of that is better than to stay in it so that can be uh you know s- score plus one for splitting up. But on the other hand, there are situations where if you're the person who didn't want the split to happen, if it's not unanimous, you know, that the the two parties don't agree, and you're the one who wanted to keep things together, but they're not together, then you always wonder, you know, is this really better? Could could the two parties have reconciled? Could they have learned to be more mature and get beyond themselves? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, in a sense, what you said earlier, that you discover this far too late is really just saying everything is clear in in hindsight. So in hindsight, there are certain things that I definitely understand. um, And and this is such an obvious, almost to the point of cliche uh, statement that, of course, if I could have done it again, and this is where the split comes in, actually. If I could have done it again, I probably would have done the same thing. Right. Because I can't say that I regret anything because I have children. And so I want those kids. Right. Right. So I can't say I regret it because then I wouldn't have had my kids. But then again, I'll tell you what my brother said, the same older brother I mentioned earlier, uh, is that, well, if you had done it differently, you would have had other kids and you wouldn't have known about the kids that you didn't have. Right. So in an alternate reality, you simply don't know what it is that you're missing. Obviously. Right? So <laughs> that is a messed up thing to tell a father. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, like that's, that's what I thought at the time. I was like, no, the, you know, my child X, I could, it could only have been X. But if you think about it, that's just simply not true because <laughs> I mean, if we're looking at the moment of conception, if we can just get granular for a moment, yeah. just offset it by a second and yes. it's another human being yes. and that's it. So I, at the time, I was <laughs> at the time I was kind of upset with my brother, as I said. But now I realize, yeah, it would have been a different version of reality. Obviously, I wouldn't have known, and it would have been what it is. And I think that's you know, something I, I've been kind of um, placing on hold throughout our conversation. Is something that, with maturity, I think has happened. Is speaking of empathizing with past selves, is the ability to simply accept things as they've happened, not necessarily to bemoan them. 
not to grieve them in a way that is disturbing to your your present self and any hope of any hopes of a future self that's sane Mm -hmm. um so just plainly forgiving yourself or accepting that yeah so the the tree hitting mat right is okay and whatever I was doing with that ruler or whatever, whatever objects I was, <laughs> I was throwing at the Geometric yeah, ninja. Whatever. Right, right, right. My, uh, my silliness there is that, yeah, it's dumb and it's ridiculous. But you know what? I, I must have needed to do that because whatever that stuff was for, it brought me to where I am now. Yes. I think that's the key. And this is how, this is how I approach the whole subject of regret. The first idea is that if you are unhappy with who you are now, that's the problem. Solve that problem. And if you are happy with who you are, that is the result of every single step you've taken your entire life. And it may have gone through some really dark places, but it brought you somewhere where you like yourself, where you respect yourself. And in this moment, that's all that matters. So... Yeah, that's all we really have. Yes. Yeah. And so and so I would say I think regret is a very it's not productive. And I used to there were a couple things in my life that I I spent years regretting. And I eventually said I'll never know the counterfactual as we said. There's nothing I can do about it. If I don't like the person that did those things, the only thing I can do is change the person I am now and not do them again. So rather than saying, I'm sorry for something that happened in the past, become the person who won't do that in the future. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Or if you do end up doing these things again, because, you know, it's, it's one of those situations, easier said than done. Well, we're not perfect. Well, yes. no. So, um, and if you do do them again, don't beat yourself up and try to just keep trying to progress and change and uh, kind of edit yourself for the better. Um, I think that's really the key is, is to begin by being able to forgive yourself. And then that becomes an act of empathy. Okay. And then, let me and then you can certainly just to finish the thought. Sorry. And then you can certainly forgive others. Mm-hmm. It, it, it seems like it has to start with, with oneself. I definitely agree that being able to forgive oneself really helps when you want to go forgive others. Because in theory, we should be the easiest person to forgive. We know ourselves the best. And so when I do something bad, I say, well, here are the reasons. They may not be good reasons, but they're reasons. And I can forgive myself. Therefore, the other person probably had reasons. And... I need to assume the best possible reasons. There's a, uh, there's a term for this in the literature. I think it's called the fundamental attribution error. The idea is that if I'm late to a meeting, it's because the traffic was bad. And if you're late to the meeting, it's because you're a selfish asshole who doesn't <laughs> care about my time. Right, right, right. But it's really important to say, well, I forgive myself for being five minutes late because there was an accident on I-43. Right. So if you're five minutes late... Let me just assume the best. Let me just assume the yeah. best of you. Assume there was something that came up yeah. and not be like, oh, why are you late? And just jump to this negative conclusion. Well, I think the people who uh, are constantly critical of others are also 
people who tend to want to control everything. I've noticed mm. that correlation. Maybe mm-hmm. this is entirely anecdotal, but uh, being very quick to criti- to criticism, being quick to criticism, is um, is a sign of being kind of a control freak. You know, being kind of a dominating person. Uh, it's like the the bad side of having an alpha personality. Mm-hmm. You know, or maybe this is really more of a beta thing because you become so accustomed to worrying about other people and what they're doing and what their motivations are all through a lens of oneself because you're thinking how what are they doing to hurt me you know like they're late to the meeting like you said because they don't care about my time but most of the time has nothing to do with you mm-hmm. or with me in this the, you know the way i'm saying it and uh, it's curious because in because i have children right looking at my young kids i kind of see uh, that some of them, or one of them at least, has a personality that's kind of evolving that way, completely naturally, uh, where she will think that something is happening because people are against her or thinking about her. And that's uh, curious to me, because I keep saying to her, and this is maybe my small way of trying to get her to mature a bit more quickly, is why do you think it's about you? Right. Like, you don't know. And she'll say things like, well, but that's what I feel. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't make it true. So teaching people I mean with kids it kind of goes without saying they have to learn to become mature but there are so many adults who simply think that everything revolves around them but they wouldn't admit it but even just saying something like that that this person is taking my time or you know doesn't care about my time doesn't care about my doesn't care about my position or my status is so narcissistic right there and it is and it stems from a lack of empathy like you were saying just to say well maybe this person had a problem had an accident it's not about me at all right and just let it go right it's a lot easier to live that way I would think that is a lesson I took a long time to learn and I still have to learn it because it's so easy to fall back into that perspective that you know the ego takes over and it's like well how is this about me and I think it's important to realize that nobody really cares about you. The odds that they're thinking about you ever is really, really low. And they have all of their own problems and hang-ups to deal with. Yeah. And the odds are that they're specifically targeting you or specifically thinking about you. They just don't have the time or the energy. And so I find that if I just assume the person doesn't care about me or isn't thinking about me, it's almost better because then I start to wonder what's going on in their lives. And that helps me be empathetic, but it also helps take me out of my own ego. Right. Right. And then that also goes back to interpersonal relationships because if you're in a romantic or a more just a friendship or a platonic relationship, then the other person may may not have done something to offend you on purpose. It's just, that's how you're, interpreting it so it's you know it's almost like what we're doing here is we're we're taking the time to have a large kind of thought experiment that comes to very obvious conclusions which is in this particular case um be forgiving Mm -hmm. don't assume the worst uh don't don't make the assumption that everything is about you and uh remember that everyone has the same problems if not worse that you do yes right so it's like yeah these are really common sense conclusions but it seems to me that just telling someone that here are the axioms of a good life. Right. 
right? Just this list that I made. Let's say, say the same thing to someone who's maturing into adulthood, you know, like a 24-year-old. <laughs> a child. Yeah, no, no, but I mean, you know, with the brain maturing, right? The, the prefrontal, that's what it was, right? The prefrontal cortex maturing around 25. So we say to someone who's on the cusp of neurological maturity, these are the axioms of, of a good life or of a, of a reasonable life. And what they'll say is, yeah, yeah, that's obvious, but they'll still act their own way until they figure it out for themselves, whether it's by midlife or by the nursing home. Well, I'll say something (laughs) insulting because you're a professor and you teach. And I think it's very hard. Was that the insulting part? (laughs) (laughs) The insulting part is that I think it's very difficult to teach anyone anything. You can help them teach themselves but they really do have to do it themselves. Oh, I agree. Just to that. tell them the axioms and to yeah. think they can live yeah. off of that. Well, it's more self-glory, isn't it? If you because you can stand on the mountain and say, "Here are the axioms <laughs> that I have discovered." Now go forth and you know multiply. Um, it's almost biblical in scope, you know, like Moses, right, holding the tablets and saying, "Here are the rules to live by." Yeah, but the people needed to figure it out for themselves. You have to live them. Um, You're absolutely right, by the way, about this whole thing about being a teacher, right? So um, a former former boss of mine, when I started teaching, I had a wonderful uh, chair of the department I was working in who is no longer that, uh, he doesn't run the department anymore, but he told me, listen, you can't teach anyone. What you can do simply, and he used this interesting analogy, he said, you can lead them to the smorgasbord, of knowledge, the buffet of knowledge. And you tell them, look, I'm going to eat a lot. You guys are welcome to join me. And if they want to nibble a little bit or if they want to, you know, pig out, it's up to them. You can't force them. Uh, and that's and that's what teaching is. You show them what to do, but they have to do it themselves. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. And, and that's something that is, is something that preoccupies me with education all the time and I know you have thoughts about education yourself uh, which is I kind of feel like the whole enterprise is very troubled and troubling because I might stand in front of a classroom of 30 35 50 students and I tell them what I think and who cares like I might have little pearls of wisdom that I appreciate and maybe some of them will appreciate but I have to get them to do and not just to listen, because the passive act of listening is ultimately not very effective. Unless they're in the mindset where they'll accept what I'm saying, think about it, and then start executing plans of action, because it always has to go to action. And I suppose it's my job as an educator to give them the direct access to those pathways for action. Mm -hmm. Because without that, if we just stop right before any activity begins, then I'm not really doing my job as a teacher. I'm just talking at them. And I know I'm not certainly not the first person to complain about this, but that's kind of what happens in these classrooms where people are simply, where educators are lecturing because the students, they, they hear it, but what are they supposed to do about it? Mm-hmm. And I don't think writing a term paper every so often is really the most effective course of action. No. (laughs) I agree. I look back on my own education, and one of the things that made a huge difference was just the passion of the teacher, just how excited 
he or she got because of the material and could they convey their own passion and i often think about that with the idea of storytelling how if you want to teach someone something if you just tell them the odds that that is going to make any difference i think is almost zero because they bring all their own prejudices and experiences and other people have told them other things there's just too much but if you can tell them if you tell them your story and make it empathetic and there's a lesson in that story almost like a fable or a myth then they may not even remember why you told the story but the moral of the story or the lesson of the story might stick with them just because the story itself was memorable yes and it has to be simple that's also you know the the most effective communication whether it's specifically within the format of education or storytelling what have you uh has to be simple because even the most complicated disciplines should be able to be i think distilled to some basic fundamental laws and of course the complexities stem from those laws but the laws themselves Mm -hmm. have to be kind of basic and i think that this ability to be reductive in a positive sense is very important in communication in education in storytelling um, in any kind of narrative driven art form um, or craft and i think that's what um that's why even when we're talking about you know our pat the, the subject we're kind of leaving right now is you know this the, the ability to li- live a mature life well it's distilled to something like you know be empathetic Right. Consider others before yourself. Don't think that everyone and is thinking about you. Apologize, Easy stuff. apologize for interrupting, but that's really funny you say that because some of the podcasts I've been doing lately were about this exact idea and how almost all the religions at their core, the core teaching is the golden rule. Right. And what is the golden rule but encouragement to be empathetic? That's all it is. If I say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you start to see yourself in them. You start to wonder how your actions impact them. You start to identify with them. It's so, it's so pure. It's, so, it's such a simple rule. But again, everything flowers from there. Right, right. I mean, the concept of a, of a very basic structure, a root, that then, I like how you said it, flowers or develops into something very, very complicated, uh, is, is very beautiful. It's, it's very elegant. And of course... The process of education, maybe I shouldn't say of course, but to me, what I've discovered is the process of education is uh, a, a, giving a student or students the ability to see that behind all of the density of the discipline is this basic kernel of something. You know, so educators are ultimately supposed to clear the brush, so to speak, right? We're chopping away the uh, foliage and all the thorniness of the discipline so that at heart the student says oh it's really about a b and c Mm -hmm. and then should they choose to pursue it then they continue on with the remaining letters let's say um but those a b a b c's of the discipline are probably common to many other disciplines and 
So this question, you know, because again, I'm teaching music, right? So I have a class, let's say, uh, of music 101. So just a survey, a, a basic introductory course. And students are coming in saying, why do I need to do this? Because they're very pragmatic. You know, they're engineers, they're computer science majors. They're not interested in music per se, but it's a requirement. So they're kind of against, not me, but they're against their presence in the classroom from day one. Right from the first moment that they walk in, why do I have to be here? I'm paying money for this. I should be using my money, my tuition money for more pragmatic, better purposes. So the hard part is convincing them that, look at this, it all boils down to one, two, three. Well, the same thing is true with other humanities and not even that, the same thing is true in physics and it might be true in applied mathematics and engineering and so on. But that takes an entire semester. Because right. again, I can everything I just said, I could say in the first five minutes of day one, but once again, they have to not just hear it, they have to practice this. And that takes an entire semester, if not more, probably an entire lifetime, I would venture. And that's the tough part of education, that educators definitely see something far beyond what the students see. But to convince the student to let go of the cynicism that especially I think we have now because, and this is not me as an old man saying, oh, things were better then. It's just the cynicism of being surrounded by information as we are, which is a great thing. But when you're surrounded by information, you think, and I think we're all guilty of this up to a point, that there are no experts anymore because we're all experts. And so uh, why do I need to listen to this clown at the, at the front of the classroom when I can just research this on Wikipedia on my own or, or whatever, <laughs> or uh, look up the hashtag, maybe it's trending, you know? So um, why, is, why is this teacher more qualified than anyone else? And that's such a challenge, um, certainly something that can be met. It's an interesting challenge, but that's probably one of the biggest things that I'm encountering now. I've been a teacher for 16 years and it's true, in the last four or five years, things have changed profoundly. Mostly, not, not just the technology, I think that's almost obvious, too obvious to say, but it's the student attitude mm -hmm. that has changed, where they simply don't come in with the trust that I actually know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, it's almost the attitude of prove to me, the student might think, prove to me why you deserve to be in front of me because I can find all this out on YouTube, can't I? Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. I guess I can, I'm sort of sympathetic with your students' point of view, because I feel that we are at some level living, I mean, this is very cliche, but in a post-truth age, where, where expert is almost becoming like a swear word. And, you know, we're told to, to trust certain people's authority, but then people see the failure of authorities. They see how instit institutions become corrupt. And at the same time, as you said, they're already exposed to so much information that by the time they get to your classroom, they already think they know the answer or they think they know which side is right. Yeah. And so you're almost damning yourself immediately if you go against anything they've, quote, learned before, or if you take a position opposed to one that they think or, quote, know is, is, is correct. And now, wait, now, but that's just with 
one person. Now multiply that by 30. You've got a classroom with 30 students, one professor, 30 students, and any given word can be a trigger, not to, you know, not to use that triggering word. But, uh, any given word can cause problems. And as soon as that happens, you're losing at least one segment of the classroom constantly, like on a rotating basis. It's like watching, you know, footage of a city that's going through a blackout, you know, as all the different buildings sort of shut down in order. So if mm. if students could be represented as lights, then at any given moment, half of your classroom or some component of the classroom is just shutting down, you know, and it goes in these waves because they're just not focused or they don't want to be focused on what is being said, what's being communicated to them, either by me or by other students. It's not that I lack sympathy or empathy for my students because I myself was a student, but when I was in college and even going to graduate school, when I, were, when I was bored, I, I didn't switch thinking um, to, or I didn't refocus my attention to think laterally. Um, and what I mean by this is, you know, there's a wonderful book um, by, uh, it's called In the Shallows, or The Shallows, no, sorry, just The Shallows, by Nicholas Carr. And he writes about the fact that the, the, the most recent technologies, you know, the ability to have a smartphone in your pocket or to have multiple tabs open uh, as you're using your computer is developing lateral thinking because as soon as you're tired of one thing, you switch over sort of in parallel to some other thought or some other activity. So, for example, you're on Facebook, you get bored, you switch over to YouTube. You get bored, you switch over to your Kindle, and so on. And the cycle is just ever, ever ongoing. Whereas a generation before this technology was more used to linear thinking. So you'd, have, you'd be exposed to a thought, and you would start thinking about the natural consequences that follow from that thought. So A leads to B leads to C and so on, instead of A leads to red, you know, completely unrelated lateral thought. Right. And so my feeling is my students today are more prone, and this is not really so much a criticism, I think it's more of an observation. They're more prone to lateral thinking. Uh, when they switch from listening to me, for example, in the classroom, they are compelled almost um, to reach for their devices. I will make that a criticism. I think that's a criticism. And just thinking out loud for a second, the problem with lateral thinking is that you never get anywhere. You're, it's always, you're always at that first, that first stage of thought. You never progress beyond it. And I think it's... Um, yeah, Dan, you're at the premise. Right. Not, not even at the development. Right. And Dan Gilbert has shown anything we read or hear, we instinctively believe and so if we just go from premise to premise and we just instinctively believe it without exploring the argument, then we start believing things without ever really trying to understand them. We just read a Twitter, a Twitter tweet or we read a, a New York Times headline and we think we understand the whole issue because we believe it and then we move on. Right. And then if someone says, well, let's spend a week or a day trying to explore this issue, you say, I got things to do. <laughs> I'm busy. I already know the answer. But you don't. You just think you know the answer. And I guess I would say that that creates... 
So here's a way to, to think about it, at least a way I think about it. There was this amazing book I read called Yes Man, and it described a year in the life of a guy who whenever anyone asked him to do anything, he said yes. So he's like, I'm just going to try being open to life for a year. And I think that's the, that's the environment of the young. When you're young, you don't know anything. So you're very exploratory. You're very curious. You're very open-minded because you want to get all the information and experience you can. And then you start to make sense of it. But then over time, you start to say no more often. You start to know yourself. You start to know what you want to do, what will not be helpful, what is wrong. And so if you start off at 100% yes, <laughs> at some point you're going to get down to maybe 5 or 10% yes, but you're going to have better experiences because you're going to have more choices and you're going to pick the things that actually have value. And you're going to follow the paths that go somewhere that you know, based on experience and knowledge, actually lead somewhere productive. And maybe this is going too far, but if, and again, you know, again, it's the cliche, but kids these days, if they're getting to the no point too early because they think they know things, then they're going to be closed off from huge parts of the world or huge parts of experience or opinions. And they're going to stay in this little bubble of, I know all the right answers. I don't want to even be exposed to anything new because I already know that this is right. And they don't have to be, right? Because if they have a certain way of thinking, they can always uh, find that bubble that supports that limited viewpoint. What's curious is while you were talking about this, I thought, well, there's this wonderful proverb, which I believe is attributed to an ancient Chinese proverb. But you know what? I might might be wrong. But the proverb goes like this, that where the student sees many possibilities, the master sees few. And it's a really interesting proverb because it's not exactly what it seems at first hearing. Because the student seeing many possibilities is on the one hand wonderful, right? You're optimistic, you're young, you're open to adventure, and you're gonna try multiple paths out, many of which are probably wrong, right? And will lead to failure, or at least will lead to walls or dead ends. And then there's the master, right? Who's already done all of that and knows that of the 100 paths that the student will try, only one or two or whatever works. So that's the side that honors the master. But by the same token, it's also one that says that the older you get, the more closed off you are to those adventures. And wouldn't it be nice if you could be unsettled from your ways and stop being so grumpy or or crusty (laughs) and uh, explore the way that a young person would because there is value not just in the, the goal you know, but the process as well, right? The, the progress of it all. So this proverb to me has served a wonderful purpose because I tell my students and I, and I, and I totally, what you just said resonates with me about, you know, being, being open to saying yes um, and, and not being inclined to say no. And I have to tell you in my own life, and again, totally anecdotal, totally personal, um, I started off kind of as an old man in, with, with reference to what you were talking about because 
I very quickly was, said no to things. And it kind of came to a head where I was, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll paint the picture a bit. So I was in graduate school and I just came, uh, this was May, I just came off a weekend of writing the master's uh, exam and the doctoral qualifying. It was, it was one in the same. It was this big, big exam. It was like six or seven hours one day and then a weekend essay. And so Monday rolls around and I pretty much didn't sleep because I was writing this essay. And um, there was a class meeting Monday evening at this professor's home. And we were talking about our final research pro projects. And I was talking about my project in front of all my colleagues, my peers, this professor. And she said something to me um, like, well, what about trying this, this possibility out? And I remember saying, no, that's not going to work. Now, now, mind you, I was exhausted. I was very tired. But that kind of defined the way I approached a lot of things. I said, no. And she totally went after me and said, why are you saying no? You don't even know where this can lead. Why? And then she made it very personal, which I didn't like. She's like, that's the kind of person you are. You say no to things before you even know what the thing entails. And I was very offended. I was also pretty embarrassed in front of my friends um, and my peers there. Um, but in retrospect, you know, we've been talking about thinking about your past self. I'm thinking about this 24, 23-year-old version of myself, something like that. And I realized that this professor was totally right in her criticism. Maybe she went about it in a way that could have been more nuanced. You know, it didn't have to be in front of everyone, all my colleagues. But uh, the point is, she was right. And I was saying no. And with time... And I think I only really discovered this in my 30s. You have to say yes to things because you, you can't even imagine those. One yes will kind of like a flowering out, using your term from before. There are so many branching out of possibilities. You say yes, and one thing leads to another. I know this is kind of, again, common sense, but until you live it yourself, it can't possibly resonate. You know, you have to live this on your own skin, so to speak. And I discovered this time and again in my own life that talking to people about some project or some idea, people who are not even in the same field as I am, can actually have more benefit and more practical use than talking to people in my field, uh, which is crazy, really, if you think about it. Um, I mean, I, I was able to I, I, I'm a filmmaker as well and uh, in music, and I was able just, again, totally specifically, but I was able to find a wonderful editor by talking to someone who has nothing to do with film, just because she knew someone who knew someone, and one thing led to another, and I found the editor. So when, for me personally, when someone says, oh, what do you do? Tell me about your life or tell me about this to say, ah, you wouldn't be interested because this has nothing to do with you is very pig-headed hmm. uh, and, and, and wrong because you never know. And um, so I think I've lived this process that you've just, I mean, you've described the ideal. Say yes as a kid or as a young person. And as you get older, you know what to say no to, right? Because the no's are not just a, um, an instinctive response to 
I, I think it has to do with being afraid ultimately, right? So you're afraid of what might this yes lead to. But as an adult, if you start off by saying yes, and you go from the base of the pyramid to the pinnacle where there are fewer and fewer yeses, but the yeses are very well informed, mm -hmm. uh, then you've lived this very mature life. But, just to finish the thought, but if you start off, if you invert that pyramid that I'm talking about or that triangle, and you start off by saying no, how do you develop outward into the yeses? So for myself, I totally understand what you're saying because I forced myself in my 30s to start being less restricted mm -hmm. and saying yeses and saying yes to many things. And um, for the most part, I, I cannot say that I regret anything. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I couldn't anyway, so. <laughs> it's, it's a very complex topic because I feel part of the reason that young people can say yes is that they have a lot of time. And so when I talk to my friends about this, they say, Matt, I have to say no to more things because I have children and a job and I just don't have the time to do the things that I might like to do. And I guess the way I think about that is this idea, as you said, that we should stay open to essentially ideas and to opinions and to letting these, these connections happen, even as our degrees of freedom are restricted. And I think, I think the way you're describing this is to say that young people are old before their time. They, they think they've explored a certain area. Yeah. Let's just take something that's hopefully not too political. <laughs> I'm not sure there's anything like that anymore. But um, just pick any topic, gun violence, let, let's say. And they know the answer, either side they're on. And so they don't even bother to try to explore the topic. If they hear someone say that they're the opposite view on gun violence, they just turn that person off completely. If there's a debate on gun violence, they turn it off because they already know the answer. And so they're young, but they think they've already explored the whole territory. They know where every path leads, and therefore they don't have to stay open-minded. And so, like, I find as I get older, I have to make a conscious effort to even when I think I know something, to still be like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Let's go through it again. Let's hear a different perspective. How has the world changed? What do you know that I don't? Let's look at it from a different angle. And those things are so painful. My ego just says, turn it off, wrong, this, this person's bad. <laughs> it's a constant struggle just to stay open-minded. And yet you see how all of this leads back to common sense axioms, because go back to Aristotle, who was one of the people attributed as having said, you know, the only thing I know is that I don't know. Right. Well, okay, that's several thousand years old, that, that little statement. And we're basically confirming the same thing time and again, which is uh, assume you're wrong, or at least assume that your position can somehow be egoless and listen to the other side, if only to confirm your own bias Right. after that. And yeah, it's tough to do because people get into, especially with the polarizing issues that we're dealing with in this world, you know, gun control, gun violence is one of many, a myriad of topics that 
that incite people to feel very strongly and personally about things. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had arguments with people who incidentally are younger than me, um, where as soon as I caution reason, right, as soon as I say something like, well, maybe this topic, whatever it might be, is needs to be observed from the other side. Maybe I should caution reason and not and caution against excess. In other words, striking a balance, you know, again, a basic thing. Well, those people dig their heels even further into the ground and say, no, you don't even want to understand. You're on the, you're on the opposing side. And I didn't say any of that. Now, that's another issue that comes up is as soon as you say, I don't necessarily, I agree with you, but I also think that there is a, a neutral territory to explore here. People say things like, well, that's it. If you're not with us, you're against us. And I've always found that to be, I'm sure there are issues where that's absolutely true, like pretty black and white, very clearly delineated sides. But that's not the case for a lot of things. And uh, that's another danger that we run into. So the, the larger point, of course, is not just, I think, we, I think we need to um, inject a, a bit more nuance into what we're saying. Um, or a little gray area here, gray areas, that it's not just about saying yes to things, but it's also about saying no to your own ego, mm -hmm. right? It's about just being able to attempt to empathize with the other side. Right. And that's, so it, it's somehow everything we're talking about seems to come back to empathy. It does. And I, I think the way you put it is right. There are certain axioms that work but it seems that the new axioms are almost directly opposed to those to those old axioms. <laughs> like, where, like what? Well, if I think of if I had to come up on the fly with a couple of the old axioms, it would be things like if something's difficult, keep trying or try a different method or break the problem down into pieces. Mm -hmm. It's not stop trying. Right. It's not bail. And if I don't know something, or I think I know something, the correct answer is not to seek out confirming evidence. Instead, I should try to seek out disconfirming evidence. I should try to expose my beliefs to reality and, and objectively observe what reality says, or thinks, or does. Yeah. But instead, conversations devolve immediately to position papers, where you're either, as you said, with them or against them. Mm. And it's no longer a question of discovering the truth. It's no longer a question of improving. It's a question of defending the ego. It's a question of appealing to your own tribe, as it were. It's a question of winning as opposed to cooperating. And, and those don't seem healthy. Well, blame it on the humanities. <laughs> no, seriously, because look, uh, you let's say you're an English major as I was in college. Well, how do you present an argument, for example, about a novel? Well, it's not necessarily about presenting absolute evidence. It's more like how do you shape the information in front of you? How do you interpret it? And that and that's the uh, I think the nicest word here. How do you interpret it to defend your position? Is it an argument? Well, that depends what you mean by argument, you know, how, your position, let's say, right. you know, how do you shape your position with the evidence that you can manipulate 
uh, to come up with a certain perspective, a certain standpoint. And that works when you're trying to say, here's what this character is or isn't, you know, when you're like trying to promote some sort of unorthodox view of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. You know, guess what? He wasn't insane at all, or or whatever. He wasn't even uh, he wasn't even real. He was the ghost. <laughs> some, <laughs> some some nonsense like that. Um, so yes, you can do that within the confines of this fantasy world that is a novel or a play. But the humanities, and you know, I'm a hum- I'm in the humanities, so I say this with some trepidation myself. Um, if you take that to an extreme and you start using that to manipulate and shape real world facts Mm -hmm. then we lead to what you said earlier which is a sort of post-truth world where it doesn't really matter what the facts are you just shape them and so i would imagine that that's why certain politicians (laughs) of our age are perfectly comfortable saying things that are directly in uh, in opposition to the uh, stated truth right because they'll just say but that's not truth. That's fake news, for example. This is real. And, you know, you do it enough and everyone sort of accepts it after a while. They're like, we're just spinning. I mean, it's not like it's it's only... This stuff hasn't just arrived today. But we're in that world where suddenly this is no longer a kind of a peripheral set of actions. Right. We're all... But, but we're right in the middle of it. We're all Goebbels, right? The big lie. You say it loud enough, often enough... And it becomes the truth. Yeah. I think that the modern term would be like a reality distortion field. If you yeah, yeah. if you lie enough, it actually becomes the truth. Yeah, and and if in fact people are only interested in the headlines, they're only interested in the premise. They're not interested in the development of the argument or the um, the way that an argument leads to something else. You know, the, the again the linear thinking of a set of ideas. They're just waiting to move on to the next item, the, the next lateral item. Then, of course, truth doesn't matter because it's just whatever you're exposed to. Um, and evidence that's in contrast to what you already believe uh, is simply to be ignored because it's outside of your bubble. Mm-hmm. So how do we fight against it? If, if we, or, or does it not matter? <laughs> While you ruminate on that, I'll say this. Something that I, uh, you know, we've all had, I'm sure, challenges in our life, you know, things that are very sad for for various reasons, um, difficult. And one one catchword that helps here, of course, is perspective. So I think about this um, little anecdote that's attributed to the uh, physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, so it goes like this. He was giving a talk um, about the... uh, the life cycle of our sun, about what what the future holds for our solar system. And he was saying that in five billion years, the sun will expand into a red giant and swallow up the rocky planets, possibly swallowing up the earth. But most importantly, life on earth will no longer be sustainable. So everything that we think is important now, it's gone forever. doesn't matter. So someone in the audience raised, raised a hand and said, Mr. deGrasse Tyson, can you or doctor, actually, can you clarify, did you say five billion years from now or five million years from now? And DeGrasse Tyson says five billion. And this person in the audience says, oh, that's a relief. And it's kind of funny because you mean five million or five billion makes any difference to you? 
to us, what right. is honestly, what's a hundred years to us? Give me a break. None of us are going to I mean, you and I are not going to be around, I think a hundred years from now, unless something magical happens. So what's a hundred years from now? You right. know, as soon as it extends past the people you see. So for me, because I have kids, they might be around in a hundred years because they're pretty small. But let's say 200 years from now. Well, you know what? It, it doesn't matter. Nothing I do now or say now will have any impact that I can register 200 years from now. So once again, this question I posed earlier, and I'm kind of answering my own question, which is not fair, not very intellectually honest, but uh, saying, what should we do about this? Part of me very often says, you know what? It doesn't matter because very soon I will not be able to experience this. And anyone I know or anyone I impact directly, whether it's a student or a child, will be, uh, won't be around for it. So does it really matter? Should we take any action? Or since in 5 billion years, none of this matters anyway, or even less, 1 billion years from now, the sun's temperature will go up and we'll be all, we'll all be screwed. So, so, so I think it's important to have <laughs> both those lenses operating at the same time. No, impossible. No, no, impossible. <laughs> I, I mean, at least I, I, I try to be radically optimistic and radically skeptic at the same time and triangulate, I guess. I guess to answer your question, I would say, and I, I think I'm channeling Peterson here, but yeah, the truth matters because if you let the lie take hold, if you start drifting away from the truth, that doesn't change the truth. You can model reality however you want, but that doesn't change reality. And so you're like, well, who cares? I don't care about reality, but reality will fuck you up. <laughs> Pardon my French. But like, and so if you start drifting too far away from the actual territory and you start referencing a map that is wrong, really bad things will happen. And they won't just happen 200 years from now or 100 years from now. They won't just happen to your children. They'll happen to you. Bad things will happen in your life that didn't have to happen. You will react to them in the wrong way that you didn't have to because maybe you didn't even believe the lie, but you didn't bother to learn the truth. Look, I, I think that what you're saying is absolutely correct. I, 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 it would be crazy to argue with that. And be yet, crazy. And be yet, crazy. And yet... And, not, and I'm not trying to argue with this. And yet, the other perspective is, well, and, I don't, and I'm not sure that I follow this, but, you know, inaction is, <laughs> it's a stand, it's a stance, it's a perspective just as much as action is. So, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's an approach to life, right? Being living in inaction or living in action either way is a, well, is okay. a legitimate stance that I will push back on very hard because, and again, I've talked about this in some other podcasts. Let's take the first, the first step, which is you don't even try to learn the truth. You stay in your filter bubble. You only associate with those who agree with you. Yeah. You ignore disconfirming evidence. If someone disagrees with you, not only do you not listen, you actively try to destroy them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You will never learn anything new. You will stagnate. You will atrophy. And if anything ever happens that's important, that doesn't fit your little preconceived notion, you you will be destroyed. Mm -hmm. You will be destroyed. Mm -hmm. 
And so I feel like that's the next step. We have this crazy idea. Human beings move very slowly. We see things change very slowly based on any kind of time frame. We think, and I'm, I make this mistake all the time, we don't understand that the natural order of the universe is towards entropy. Things fall apart. If you just think you're holding still, you are going backwards at a phenomenal rate. And if, if you aren't, it's like the Red Queen in Alice. You have to run as hard as you can just to stay where you are. If you ever take a break, if you ever think, I know all the answers, if you ever think, I don't need to stay up on what the truth is or what's really going on, you will be behind the times so quickly. Absolutely. And then you're going to look around. You won't recognize the world. You won't be in sync with the world. You'll be confused. You'll be fearful. And what does that make someone do? It makes them hunker down even more. It makes them more afraid. So they build this prison of of not understanding and of fear and of suspicion. And their world just shrinks inch by inch. And that's that's hell. Well, that's, uh, again, talking about like... Uh you know, ancient axioms. Look at some of the Greek myths. Consider um, Narcissus, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we mentioned narcissism earlier, but consider the actual source, right, of the myth. So what does Narcissus do, right? He falls in love with his own reflection in the river and then eventually just dies, right? Because right. all he can do is look at himself. Um, and the, uh, the nymph that was in love with him, Echo, all she could do is repeat his own words as he said i love you to himself and all she could do was say i love you you know so it becomes uh, the, the idea of, st- of of stillness equaling stagnation i agree with and you know what i'm positing about inaction or action yeah part of that is me playing devil's advocate but the other part is the other perspective which is does it really matter in the biggest picture of all all right which let me... is which again is it's <laughs> very silly because it's you know if you live a life where you're thinking, okay, listen, in a billion years, life will be unsustainable on Earth. And so whatever it is that we're fighting for now will ultimately, in the biggest, biggest frame, be inconsequential. Then you might as well just lie down and just wait, right? Stop eating, stop drinking, because, you know, you're going to die one way or another. It could be today or it could be in 50 years. So what's 50 years in the global time frame? Nothing, nothing. So... Why not just be what? In other words, this this has been kind of fascinating me, especially as I get older, because that sense of your own mortality becomes more real. Children and and young people definitely, and I would still love to think of myself as a young person. I think I am, but that sense of mortality is what distinguishes me. I think from someone even ten years younger. Um, this this feeling of timelessness, of boundlessness, is something that kind of um, it goes away or, or it closes down with time. And you're like, no, there are real boundaries. There, there are fewer possibilities to say yes. Right. Uh, to echo what we were talking about before. Uh, so, so that one perspective that, you know, there's less and less time. And so you kind of say, well, you know what? Fuck it. I think I will do whatever I want. So if I want to be inactive, I, I get to do so. But again, that seems to be in contradiction, a contradiction to what we were talking about earlier, because I'm not supposed to do that, right? I'm supposed to fight until the end. You know, um, just one very quick thought, and I, and I, want, I want your response on this, but, uh, you know, you're saying we, you've got to keep moving, because otherwise it's stagnation, and stagnation is, you know, kind of death, moral, 
physical, psychological, what have you. Um, well, what if you're into fitness? So I'm into fitness. I know you're into fitness now. Uh, one of the things about getting older is you have to work harder just to maintain, right? And certainly even harder to transcend whatever physicality you're supposed to have at your given age. So that's very important to me, right? Not to stagnate, to keep moving, to keep building and to, to stay healthy and, and all that. Um, but um, the idea of exercising is basically it's work, right? Maybe it's fun, but it's still a lot of work. So why should I do it? Right? But I want to do it. So why does it matter? And I'm asking this sort of rhetorically, sort of not. Why does it matter? Like, who am I looking good for? Or who am I staying healthy for? And of course, there's an answer. In my, in, in my case, to be perfectly frank, it's for my children. I want to be around as mm -hmm. long as possible mm -hmm. so that they can benefit from my presence, even if they don't like me. But <laughs> even if, <laughs> as teenagers, they're like, you know, get away from us, Dad. But um, I want them to benefit from my presence in, in the many ways that I can be of benefit and of service to my children. Um, but let's say I don't have kids. Then, so like, like you, for example, right? So um, who are you doing it for? Mm -hmm. Right? Why are you staying healthy? Why is it important? I think the fitness is a really good example. And this is something I ask myself whenever I'm tired and I don't want to go to the gym or I'm in the middle of a really hard set and my body really has its voice, its own voice and says, Matt, why are you doing this? This is stupid. You're not trying to get laid. <laughs> you don't have children that you need to stay healthy for. Does it really matter if you can do this erg piece at this split or this split? Right. Go eat some ice cream. Go enjoy your life. And it's a very seductive voice, but it's completely wrong. Because, and I know this from experience now, if I go and do those things, I'll enjoy them in the moment. But then I'll have a stomachache at night. I'll feel logy in the morning. I won't have energy. All the things that, not all the things, but a lot of the things that seem unpleasant in the moment, we do because we're thinking about the future. We're delaying the gratification. And, and I know that it would be more fun not to go to the gym. It would be more fun not to listen to people I disagree with. But would that make me a better or a worse person in a year? And would that future self, you know, we talk about the past self, but would that future self thank me for those choices that I've made? And even on a more immediate level, I think this is why exercise is so wonderful. Exercise gives me endorphins. It, right. it feels great afterward. It, it's like a it's like meditating. My mind is much clearer after I work out. It's not just the the vanity of of being healthy. It's it's the mental state as well. And even more, I find that when I have a system where I'm trying to continually improve in a certain exercise, that gives me dopamine because I am making progress, and that progress increases my self-confidence. It, it's, I mean, I'm literally getting rewarded by chemicals in my brain. My brain is saying, good job, Matt. And even if that's for an end that isn't that important, you know, being stronger, I still get those chemicals. <laughs> it still feels really good to make progress at something. 
And it spills over to everything I do. Everything I do now, I can say to myself, you know, I couldn't do this two weeks ago in the gym and now I can do it. What else can't I do that maybe I can do if I really apply myself? Maybe I'm better than I thought I was. Maybe I'm more capable than I thought I was. And how do I do it? Well, the same way I get better at the gym. I deliberately suffer. Yeah. I deliberately hurt myself and I make these small incremental gains that I don't even notice. But then the next, you know, two weeks later or a month later, I'm a little bit faster. I'm a little bit stronger. It's a wonderful feeling. Well, yeah, hypertrophy. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, if you're building muscles, you are tearing. You're making microscopic tears in the muscle fibers so that they can heal and enlarge. So the process of growth is by almost by default one of pain and one of some degree of suffering or, or just even more maybe blandly discomfort. Right. Right. But we now live in a culture where that is forbidden, where it's a negative moral outcome for anyone to feel bad for any reason. Well, right. I mean, going back to education, yeah, it's not comfortable to study because you are confronted on a daily basis with your own ignorance when you start learning something because you're like, I didn't know that. So even just the admission of not knowing something is um, a blow to the ego. So if we're living in a world where we have to somehow pad our egos on a constant basis, then yes, we're in a lot of trouble according to this, this premise. Um, but if we can somehow, so, so you know, as you're, as you're talking about the, the role of exercise, it really turns out that it's not quite so simple as to say, you know, back to our uh, common sense truths for the day, our axioms for the day. It's not as simple as saying you must be empathetic, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But you also have to have some degree of, and I'm not sure this is the right word, but selfishness. Because you have to make sure that you're okay. Mm -hmm. so that you can be of service to others, right? And I have, I have thought about that. Um, again, it, for me, it goes back to my children because I think of it this way. Um, when I work out, and let's, say, let's say I'm spending money on getting exercise gear because I work out in, in my home. So what justifies this expense for yet another set of barbells? Well, because it will make me healthier, It'll keep me active, and anything that's good for me is good for my kids. Mm -hmm. Because, again, I'll be around for them. So, that, so that's kind of what it is. It's, it's empathy, but the kernel of empathy, or the, one of the roots of empathy, and may, maybe I'm not quite right in the way I'm saying this, or maybe it's a little bit too contradictory, but the, the core of empathy, being able to feel uh, for others, putting yourself in, in the position of someone else, whether they're suffering or not, is to actually be somewhat selfish. Mm -hmm. And not just selfish, but, and this is the wrong word, but mean. <laughs> because I think C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He said, again, he's using the language of religion, but he said, God is not a grandfather. He's a father. When the grandfather comes over, he gives you candy. Right. He says everything is great. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, he's not your father. The father really wants you to become a man. Right. He wants you to get strong. Right. He wants you to become an adult. Yeah. He wants you to get strong. Yeah. And so he's much harder on you than 
your grandfather. And so being empathetic does not mean to be nice. Yeah. It doesn't mean to be kind. It doesn't mean to, to encourage the fragility of youth. It's how can I make you stronger without breaking you? Yeah, maybe exposing you to life's discomforts earlier rather than later. Um, well, yeah, if you keep something safe, it gets yeah. weaker. Yeah, or more, yeah, more fragile. Um, or it maintains that fragility as opposed to getting tough, you know. Uh, it's something that in my time as a teacher, I, I've, I've started to do more and more. Is I kind of feel like there isn't time to coddle a student. And not because I'm mean, but just because I'd rather be direct so that I can engender change and progress in that person. Um, for example, a lot of my students, well, not a lot, I take that back, stricken from the record, some of my students who are perhaps more sensitive or just aren't used to people being more direct, they think that when I correct their papers, and I'm, very, I'm a very, very detailed editor of my students' work, they get their papers back and it's covered in red. You know, I, I kind of metaphorically bleed all over it. Um, and they're shocked. They're like, you know, they, they accuse me, and this is funny because I see these in some of my um, evaluations by students, that they'll write something like, he writes, quote-unquote, no, on my paper. And I think that's kind of shocking because we might be in a society where the word no is a big problem. Um because I don't have time necessarily to say, you know, your complete misunderstanding of the English language is okay because all you're doing is you're using colloquialisms out of, let's say, texting or um, DMing, you know, and you're, and you're somehow, and you think it's okay to transfer that to the academic sphere or to the formal writing sphere. Well, guess what? It's not. So no instead of explaining that this does not have room in formal writing, which I can certainly do, but sometimes a no is better than all of that excessive explanation. So I have students who are quite shocked that I do that. I just write no. Now, is this nice? No, absolutely not. But if a student could get outside of his or her personal ego, then they get to say, uh, what if I try with this with this person, with this older person. This is really an important thing. Older, wiser, more experienced. And I'm not inflating myself by saying these things. These are just simply factual things. I'm wiser, that doesn't make me wise. That's another problem that we have, is the distinction between progress and absolute. If I said I am wise, that's an absolute statement. But wiser just means compared to someone else. Mm -hmm. So this whole thing of like, uh, I know more than you. Why is that such an insult? If I'm 40 and they're 18, of course I know more than them. I've been around longer, just from that one element. And I'm not living in a cave, so don't be insulted. Learn from it and become better. As What's a funny is you've told the same story now <laughs> from, no, no, from both viewpoints, right. where you tear apart the student's paper yeah. and your supervisor, I guess, for your paper, when you said no, said, why do you always say no? Right. right? Why? Right, right, right. You're saying to the student, change and grow and get stronger, just as the person said to you, Dan, change and grow and get stronger. And I, th I think that's really key. I mean, I remember... Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? I really remember the same thing from high school. I was coasting by in a course, and the teacher took me outside and just reamed me. 
and said, you should drop this course. You are, you are not trying. You're putting in no effort. It's an insult to the other members of the class. What are you doing? And I was so angry. I was so embarrassed. Yeah. I was livid. I was a 16-year-old kid who thought he'd outgained or outgamed the system, and the system pushed back. And that was one of the turning points in my life because at that time, that was an authority figure that I really listened to and really respected. And so I changed. I, it was incredibly difficult, but I started putting in the effort and I went to him for help and he helped me, right? That was the other side of the coin. He helped me a lot and I did well. But if I had just said, I don't want to change. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to grow. I don't want to get stronger. You can't speak to me like that. Yeah, yeah. I would have been the one who suffered. I would have suffered here in the true bad sense. I would have been the one to atrophy yeah. and to get weaker. Yeah. Again, that quote, tough love was much more of a father's approach than a grandfather's approach. And I benefited from that kick in the ass. And so when someone kicks my ass even now, my, in, my initial response is still the same. It's screw you. It's I'm perfect. It's I know better than you. It's I don't want to change. It's this is too painful. This is too hard. It's too uncomfortable. And then if I'm really lucky, I can remember the times in the past where I became a better person because I was kicked in the ass and I took it with humility and with some form of grace. Yeah, this is this is why I think, and I, and I and I think you'd agree with me, why athletics and any kind of discipline, yes, music definitely. That's my background. Why it's so important for children to undertake the discipline. So, yeah, the sooner the better. Yes, because to be able to be humbled on a daily basis is fundamental. I think to the uh, mature human experience. Humbled, yes. Yeah, humbled. That's I tell I you. Use, you should be humbled every day in practice. Right? Yes. I, I, I don't want to hear about successes. I want to hear about the problems. Yeah. And you will remember, I mean, you knew me in high school. I was this insanely skinny, unathletic kid who was much more comfortable playing chess or reading than doing anything sports related. And for a very long time, I had a lot of resentment towards this idea that good firms would hire athletes because I was like who cares if they were an athlete they're not as smart as I am they don't work as hard as I do they're you know they've been they've gotten everything good out of life up until now mm-hmm. now it's my turn in a sense yeah. and what I really didn't understand is that if done correctly sports really teaches exactly what you're saying it teaches discipline it teaches how to stick to something you're not good at it teaches you how to get better at something it teaches you how to be humiliated or humbled on a daily basis and get up and just keep doing it yeah like extremely important skill sets to possess um and and the earlier the better uh, like i said before just because when you're doing it during your formative years, you can become an adult who actually understands that there are other viewpoints and that you can certainly be wrong most of the time because that's the reality of things. Right. Get into the habit yeah. of being wrong. Get into the habit of 
trying to get better, not assuming that you're right. And again, sports is a very easy example, but I think this can be done in any discipline. Well, look, in my discipline, absolutely. I mean, my father worked with me. You're speaking of fathers. My father worked with me on a daily basis from the time I was well, about five until, uh, until 18. And the truth is, is that it was so hard and so humiliating and so painful and so upsetting and so devastating to my ego. And... Um, but I think I emerged the better for it. And just as a quick anecdote sort of related to this, I've told my students about this, about my training as a pianist. When I teach piano, even if it's just for beginners for one semester, like in a college class, and I've had this story used against me by my students. Not often, but they'll say things like, he was abused, I wasn't. But that's what they take from my story. They're like, oh, this is an abusive situation. No, it's not. Being humiliated is not the same thing as being abused. It, it, maybe there's a gray area, but I certainly was not abused. I just had someone who was very strict and imposed a discipline. So the point is, I'll tell them the story and they'll say, oh, he was abused. He's taking out his abuse on us. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm giving you a a taste. That's all it is. It's like a little tiny sample, a pinky in the water of what it's like to actually work in music. Just so you have, to go back to the word of the day, empathy with people who are artists. Because people, again, not to sound too cliche here or too simplistic, but people outside of the arts think that artists are, well, a special breed of lazy people, right? Because they are waiting for inspiration to strike from up high or down low, whichever, which, whoever you made your pact with. Um, and they think that it's not a discipline. It's just lightning waiting to strike. Well, I think any mature person understands that that's not the case, that you work for it. And um, to understand how that work proceeds, I will sometimes be very hard on my students. And it's an amazing thing to see people say, ah, he's just doing onto us as was done unto him. I think that's the famous Hubert Humphrey uh, quote, you know, I'll do unto you as they did unto me. That is, you pass on the abuse. Um, not the case in this, in this particular instance, not the case. So it's, uh, we kind of keep circling around these, these uh, key words for the day, right? So empathy, but also a degree of selfishness, but also a degree of um, being hard on yourself. Discipline. Of being disciplined. So empathy plus discipline equals? I don't know, but can you think of any profession where the 10,000 hours rule doesn't apply and where most of those 10,000 hours aren't just a slog? <clears throat> I don't know. I don't think there is one. I'm sure. I'm I think sure. most, I mean, you look at the great people in any field, they spend thousands and thousands of hours doing things that were repetitive and boring and sort of annoying, whether it's shooting free throws, practicing the piano, whatever it is. And if we can't be honest that that's what it takes to succeed, if we sort of default to this like montage mentality, you know, I'll, I'll learn... Lateral thinking, again. Lateral thinking. That's what a montage is, right? Yeah. I'll learn when I need it. Uh-huh. I won't prepare. I won't be disciplined. And then just expect good things to happen. Right. Your map won't match the territory. You won't succeed. You won't be happy. 
you'll be resentful. Well, that's a fairy tale, isn't it? That's a fairy tale world where things work out magically. Mm-hmm. You know, the fairy godmother comes and saves you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you'll be in that situation that you talked about earlier, which is stagnation because you you become you you live in that bubble and the more you disconnect from the outside world the worse it gets right and then instead of seeing that opportunity to get better incrementally as an op- as, as an opportunity or as something that's necessary i think people today start to see themselves as victims of abuse they see themselves as the oppressed and instead of embracing the opportunity they reject it as abuse in in those circumstances where it isn't. Yes. I think that's, yeah. Yes. And abuse just, obviously yes, exists. Be, I think it's important to clarify hope, that point. Yeah. Where, I hope where people understand that. Yeah. No, no. I, out of context, this won't make sense, but in context, it's just that people feel like they were somehow, well, okay. Maybe another way of saying is they create the culture of victimhood or they, right. or they, they, they think that they're victimized where Maybe they weren't. Well, you, you, you're saying you can't even criticize someone's paper. Well, I, I Something can. they spent four hours creating, you criticize it and they get upset. Imagine when someone criticizes a deeply held belief or right. an approach to life yeah. or whatever it is. Absolutely. But it's that challenge and defense that's, that's how you get better. That's what it all comes down to. I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, and that probably is another key facet of empathy which is not just a thing like a condition of life but empathy is this ongoing character right characteristic in a human being because to be empathetic you constantly have to be humbled in your own attempts at being empathetic if that makes sense it does i'll ask you this who's more empathetic the father or the grandfather well, probably the, the father in, in this case, yeah. um, because it's the tough, like you said, the tough love approach. I think the grandfather has gotten to that point where um, it just doesn't matter anymore. Right. That, that's the model that I was... That's the hundred years. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the model I was talking about earlier, which is who cares because in a billion years or in the case of the grandfather, you know, maybe in 10 years, none of this matters. Um, right. yes. And by the way, I do think you have to have both hats. You have to have... It's almost the yin and the yang. It's the mother yeah. and the father. The father yeah. is the hard one, and the mother is maybe a little bit more sympathetic. Yeah, in a traditional role, absolutely. But again, I, the balance is key. Yeah, absolutely. The, so it, it, it's the macro versus the micro. It's the large scale versus the details. It's the forest for the trees. We're back to the old axioms, aren't we? Right. So, and, and that's the other thing, right? To remember that, as, as um, I think, thrilled as we are right now by these pithy conversations is to remember that nothing we've said has not been said before. And to kind of accept that, you know, and I don't mean to, de- I don't want to take anything away really from what we're talking about. I think this is, it, it helps for self-improvement. Let me reframe that for a second. I, I do not understand this obsession with originality. If we are <laughs> discussing topics where I, I almost feel that if you do say something original, it's probably wrong. Because it's the great truths that are echoed in every generation. But again, you can't just tell them to people. They can't just read 
Plato and they can't just read whoever else and be like, oh, I get this. They have to live it. They have to act it. They have to experience it. And so I feel very content rehashing old territory because it helps internalize the lessons. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, truthfully, before you were before you started saying this, and I agree with you, I was I was getting to that point. And I think it can also be summarized this way. You know, again, going back to fitness. I, I started really getting into fitness as something that I was motivated to do for myself at the age of 35. And one of these trainers that I, you know, you listen, you've got to listen to what these trainers say. Yeah, they're working you very hard, like I do a lot of at-home videos, and they, they're constantly talking over the workout. And if you actually listen to the good trainers, what they say is very wise. And one of them said, every expert has to know the basics. Well, okay, seems pretty obvious, but if you think about that for a second, that doesn't just mean knowing the basics, it also means reviewing the basics. And as advanced as you may be in whatever discipline you're practicing, you have to be able to go back to the very foundation and really understand what that foundation is for. If you're a teacher, that's especially important. Um, I sometimes get people to say, aren't you uh, saying to me, aren't you bored teaching intro classes? And uh, the truth is no, because I better be able to teach the basics if I'm an expert in my field. If I, and, and that's why in, in, the more, in the more sophisticated educational programs, the best teachers, the most experienced teachers are the ones teaching level one mm-hmm. because that's who you want to be if you're about to embark on learning a discipline and you're dealing with level zero or level one you want to be dealing with the utmost expertise you don't want a graduate student no offense any grad students but you don't want a graduate student working with you because the truth is they're at the very beginning Feynman right Feynman Richard teaching Feynman, yeah sure sure Basic. absolutely the basics of physics, right? From a master, yeah. right? And even Einstein said things like, you know, the, the most complicated things should be able to be distilled to their essentials. Right. I think it's an amazing point. I think it cuts across disciplines. Yeah. The masters are continually revisiting the foundations. And so... Yeah, and so I see nothing wrong in sort of going over old axioms and rederiving them and thinking about them some more. Well, it's a pleasure to be able to rediscover them, as it were, because you end up reliving them. You know, they, they, every time you come up with, you, you come back to that, let's say, golden rule or whatever axiom we're talking about. Every time you rediscover it for yourself, you are living it. And that was one of the major themes of our conversation today, which is, it's one thing to be told, but it's so much better to live it. Mm-hmm. And so the process of discovering, even through conversation, as opposed to action per se, um, to discover something that has some sort of the, the essentials of um, universality is an incredible process. And it's, it's something that takes maturity. It's yeah. something that requires saying yes. It's something that requires linear thinking. It, it requires... To put it bluntly, time. Mm-hmm. Time to get there. Yeah, I mean, look at med school. They, the mantra is learn one, do one, 
teach one. And in my own experience, it was the same thing. I never really understood certain things until I was forced to teach them to others. Well, I'd like to say that's why I became a teacher, because I really wanted to know my discipline better. So I hate that adage, you know, that nonsense adage that those who can't teach. That is such an insult to the profession. And it's not just because I'm a teacher, but it's just nonsense. If I really didn't know what I was doing, then teaching it would be unethical. Mm-hmm. And so ethical teaching, at least, is teaching where you've done it, the thing that you're teaching. And then you can hopefully uh, inspire the students to come to the table with you. And then how much or how little they eat is not up to you. Right. Right. Good stuff. I think we'll call it a day. I don't think I'm Joe Rogan quite yet. Okay. That's it. If you made it this far, I'd be really curious about any feedback on whether it was too long. Thanks very much.